being left glory to come to earth that we might know him personally. Isn't God good? We have so much to celebrate, so much to rejoice over. And then we come to a sermon series called Christians in Government. Everybody just kind of takes a breath and girds up their loins. Now, I'll tell you, as I've been studying and preparing for this message, I was saying, Lord, you know, last week, last week we talked about the glories of the cross, the danger of mistaking that somehow we could earn your righteousness, the, the hazard of facing coming judgment, and yet the grace we experience in your forgiveness and how that call is extended to all people. And today, you say that we're to pay taxes and to surrender ourselves to government. What is the connection? How do these go together? I do want you to know that Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, our text for this week and next week, Sharon read earlier this morning, this is not a parenthesis in this passage. This is a continuation. It's not out of context, to use the phrase. It's not chasing rabbits. It's not Paul getting distracted by something. It's not just a hiccup in his thinking. This flows in the context of what we've been studying. So what have we been studying in Romans chapter 12? I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him, which is your reasonable service of worship. The mercies of God displayed upon us and poured out upon us calls us to live differently. We aren't to be conformed to the world. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may live in such a way we demonstrate, we prove, we show forth what God's good and perfect will is. Why? Because we belong to him. And because we belong to him, we serve. We're steadfast servants. Because we belong to him, we interact differently with people in the family and people outside of the family of God. We love wisely and we love well. Because of the mercies of God and the grace that we have received, we don't take our own vengeance. When there are those who pursue us, intending to do us harm, we bless them instead of curse them. We do not take our own vengeance, even when we're the victim, because we trust God to enact vengeance, righteousness, justice, to, to conduct himself justly in the world. And he does. Does that leave us any recourse when we are a victim of wrong? Well, it does. As a matter of fact, this passage, one of the truths of this passage is that God ordains governments so that we might experience at least some level of justice here and now. But it's always an interesting topic to, to talk about how Christians are to relate to our government. The Holy Spirit takes us right to the authorities. There is a God-ordained provision for justice now. And there are some alarming statements in this passage. As a matter of fact, as alarmed as you and I might be living here in a constitutional republic, living here in the United States of America and our government, some of these are kind of like, oh, Lord, are you sure? Is this, is this really what you would have us to believe and how you would have us to act? Imagine what it was like for first century Christians, the recipients, the first recipients of this letter, of this instruction for God. I want to read just the first two verses again to, to help us to recognize the, the kind of shock this would have been to their system. Paul goes on and he says, the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul goes on and says, let every person be subject, hupotasso, to be under and to be aligned. So to align yourself under, be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. Massive statement. 
and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And just jump down to verse 5, if you will. Well, actually, we'll put 4 in there as well. The, the ruler is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, and here's the focal point, one must be in subjection for two reasons. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, there was a time in this country where we were viewed as a Christian nation. Some of you remember those days. Haven't been that long ago. There was a time when people would say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian simply because I'm a citizen of the United States. Many of our laws are the majority of them, and much of our culture was built upon a, a biblical ethic, what are known as Judeo-Christian values. You could walk in a courthouse, and there you would see the Ten Commandments. It was easy to place the country's flag in the sanctuary of our churches, but the world has changed. And many of our laws no longer reflect the morals of a Judeo-Christian value or of a biblical value, what's right and what's wrong. And yet, God's word does not change. The declarations about God instituting authority has not changed. The command that God gives to us as how we are to behave as citizens of a, another country Citizens of heaven, while we're here on earth, do not change. Now, if we think it's difficult in our day, again, let's put it in a little bit of historical context. And I know about half of this congregation loves history. But I do want us to know a little bit about what's taking place. When Paul wrote these words, Nero was the emperor of Rome. You know anything about him? Remember some of the stuff about Nero? Let me tell you just a, a few things some of you do. He reigned in Rome from A.D. 54 to A.D. 68. This book was written in about A.D. 57. The nicest things that are said about him in history is that he was a tyrant, that he was self-indulgent, that he was immoral or debauched is a word that was often used. Some of the things that you may not know, he, he took office. He began to rule when he was in, just almost 18 years old. Uh, his mother, actually Agrippina, uh, was his uh, regent. She gave him advice and counsel, and she wanted to rule. And so he ruled in cooperation with his mother and with his tutor as his advisors until he felt like they were too restrictive. And then, in order to get them away from influencing him and the government, he had them killed. He had his own mother put to death and murdered illegally. Um, he was immoral. One of the things he would do is he would bring in, he was known for this, a string of effeminate men into his palace and dress them as women and go through these, quote, wedding ceremonies to indulge his passion for homosexual relationships. He hated Christians, hated everything there was to do with Christians, but he saw them as a political uh, whipping boy for a lot of what took place in his policy. Some of the more bizarre historical accounts prior to the burning of Rome, which Nero may have commissioned, and he blamed, ended up blaming the Christians for the fire, but his torture of Christians included having Christians tied to posts in his garden, drenching them in tar, and setting them on fire to both kill them and to light his garden while he hosted parties 
in his garden. He was about as bad a picture as you could possibly get as a ruler. And he was the governing authority that these people would have heard when Paul said that you're to be subject to your governing authorities. Now let's all take a breath. Because this matters. We need, there are a few things that we've got to grasp and that we've got to understand. And, and, and the first one, folks, is that we are subject to our governing authorities because our king told us to be. We need to remember that when we came to Christ, we gave up our rights. There's, when we came to Christ, we gave up the right to rule ourselves, to make our own decisions. We gave up the right to self-determination we decided and God regenerated in us and brought us to life and gave us to the understanding that we do have a king of glory that we do have a king of kings and lord of lords and he is Jesus he is the king who came for this purpose to reveal truth to to save the lost to, to make a new family we'll see more of this as we get a little bit further into this text But we have a citizenship that is not here on this earth. The first point I want you to write down if you're taking notes is you need to remember that when you came to Christ in repentance and faith, you gained a king. You gained a citizenship in his heavenly kingdom. We need to remember that though our earthly citizenship may be in the United States of America, or maybe in the Philippines, or though your citizenship may be in China, or your citizenship may be South Korea, or your citizenship may be North Korea. When we come to Christ, you get a new citizenship, one that is not just a slice of the world. We have a new king and are part of his kingdom, and our ultimate allegiance is to him. We need to remember Our citizenship is heaven, and our ultimate allegiance is always to our king. Amen? Now, that's easy to say when it's the Lord Jesus Christ because he is lovely, and he is perfect, and he is holy, and he is just, and he is kind, and he is gracious, and he is caring, and it is easy to love the Lord Jesus Christ. It's easy to love God, our Father, who makes the sun to rise in the east and set in the west and brings the sun and the rain and blesses us with good. It is easy to have at least some concept of loving a holy and a just God, just God. But he, in turn, puts earthly leaders into place and into authority, and they are not as easy to love. And so we obey them. We respect our authorities. We submit ourselves to them because of our citizenship in heaven. Our king, our ultimate king, has told us to. Remember our first prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I tell you what, turn to a passage with me. Uh, Open your Bibles to John chapter 18. This Jesus, this king of glory, does what? He submits himself to earthly authority. You remember how, by the way, I hope you're following the 40 days of prayer as we approach Easter. Fridays, we, we read a portion of this Friday or Saturday, yesterday, the last day of last week. This week, what we're fixing to read is what we're supposed to be reading tomorrow as we prepare for Easter. It's found in John chapter 18. Uh, and uh, 
We'll read verses 33 through 38. Jesus has been taken from the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been taken to Annas. He's been taken to the house of Caiaphas. And now he is presented before Pilate. And picking up in verse 33, we have a very poignant exchange. Pilate entered into his headquarters again. This is John chapter 18, verse 33. Pilate entered into his headquarters again. He called Jesus and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Great question, isn't it? Great question. But it's a loaded question. Why? Who's asking it? Pilate is asking it. Pilate is the governor. He's the one who has the authority over the Jews or what is identified as the Jewish nation under Roman Empire. So he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, I love the answer, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Where did you hear this? Do you know I'm the king? Pilate answered, well, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, now get this. Jesus answered, my kingdom. What does that make him? A king. My kingdom. Yes, I'm a king. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, which Peter started to do and Jesus corrected, you remember. But my kingdom is not from the world. So Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus said, you've said it. You say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Listen, not everyone acknowledges that Jesus is king. Jesus is not Everyone's king. Now, he is the king of glory. And there is a a sense in which he is the king of all that ever exists. But there are those who are his subjects, those who are part of his kingdom, those who have bowed the knee to him, those who have responded to the gospel, those who have been brought to life by the Holy Spirit. We listen to his voice. Of course, Pilate disdains that. Well, what is truth? We are, as I often heard growing up, children of the king. My dad would walk through the house. My dad did not have a, a, a quality singing voice, but he had a loud one. And he'd walk through the house a lot of times singing, I'm a child of the king, a child of the king. With Jesus, my savior, I'm a child of the king. I don't know if any of you guys remember some of those old songs. They were songs that I heard growing up and remembered. I was always told that we were ki- the king's kids, members of his kingdom. And we need to remember our citizenship is heaven and we hold our ultimate allegiance to King Jesus. There's a real sense in which we're expatriates. You guys know what expats are. These are people who have their citizenship in one country, but they actually live in a residence in another. They are out of ek and then patria, which means country or, or homeland. Uh, there are those who are living in a foreign homeland. Listen, we need to get firmly in our mind As believers, that even here at home, in a city as beautiful as Greenville, in a county as great as Carolina, in a state as great as South Carolina, in a country as wonderful and blessed as the United States of America, this is not our ultimate home. This is not our primary citizenship. Our primary citizenship is in heaven. The Bible speaks of that so often. Philippians chapter 3, Paul again writing from jail says, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. When he was writing to the Christians in Ephesus, the Jews and the Gentiles that were being incorporated into the body, he says, You are no longer outside of the body, strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints 
You are citizens with the saints and part of God's household. And Hebrews 11, there's so many scriptures that address this, but I love Hebrews 11. You guys remember Hebrews 11 is our chapter of faith, our hall of heroes, if you will. As he begins chapter 11, he mentions Abel, he mentions Abraham and Sarah, he mentions Enoch, he mentions Noah, he mentions all of these. And then he says in verse 13, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeting, greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they, they acknowledged then that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak like this, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. There's another place that they're citizen of. They are on the way home. And while they're here, they haven't received it. Two more verses, verse 15 and 16. If they had been thinking of that land that they had gone out from, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, what? They desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. We have to understand that we recognize that we are primarily citizens of heaven. They knew they were citizens of a better country, a heavenly one whose king is Jesus. And so it's appropriate that we look at this passage because in the previous chapter, the writer is addressing, of Hebrews chapter 10, the writer is addressing the persecution that they were facing. Do you think their government was out to get them? Out intending to do them harm? Here's what he says in, in chapter 10, verse 32. You remember the former days when, after you were enlightened, after the Holy Spirit gave you knowledge and understanding, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your own property since you knew that you yourself had a better possession and an abiding one. What's the point? And guys, I'm going to try not to get too bogged down in this but it's really really so important that we get this this is not our home we live and die by the will of our father who is in heaven by the will of our sovereign our king we no longer even live to please ourselves we live to please him in all things amen isn't that fun isn't that exciting? A lot of times it's thrilling and it's challenging. But boy, it sure raises questions because we just read about these guys who had their possessions plundered. What if, what if our possessions are plundered? We read about these who did not live to see the promise fulfilled, but they lived in faith that it would be. What, what if we die? What if we suffer for being children of the king? The Bible says it's all right. Because we have a future and a promise and a hope. We have God's provision now. We have God's ultimate provision in that which is coming. The coming that he has promised to us. And so the command remains, even when we are under, I, I use the word in the outline, flawed. You can go ahead and put the second point on the line. We need to remember that we're to respect the human authorities. Even acknowledging that they are flawed, that they are human. They're worse than flawed in many cases. They're lost and they are depraved and they're just like you and I were before we came to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
they are self-centered and they are self-focused and they are self-pleasing and they are jealous and they are arguing and fighting and biting and, and gnarling. And, and that's the picture that we have so many times when we think about government in particular, even local government. It's important that we recognize that the command remains that let every person be subject, hupotasso, aligned under the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, here's the point. Our impetus, our motivation, the reason that we obey this command is not because our authorities have earned through their morals, through their integrity, through their ability to keep their promises when they're on the campaign trail have earned our subjection. It is because our king has told us to do so. They are, in a very real sense, God's proxies. Does that make sense? Suzanne and I were blessed throughout our life when our kids were little to have really good babysitters. We never left our kids under the authority of someone that we didn't trust them with. We just never did. I mean, we had good ones. And so it was important that when we left... We left them under the authority. Now, when we left, we always told the kids they're in charge. The babysitter's in charge, whether it's Elizabeth or Kelly or Stephanie or Robin, whoever it was, they're in charge. You do what they say do. When they say it's time to eat, you go eat. When they say it's time to pick up your toys, you pick up the toys. When they say it's time to bed, go. When it's time to go to bed, you go to bed. They are the boss of you when we're gone, Okay. In the same way, God establishes authorities. What if we had a sitter that was flawed, a sitter, to, a, a sitter that had bad sins, morality, problems? Would that justify our kids not being obedient to them? No, they still would have to be obedient to them because we told them to do so. And then when we came home, the sitter would be accountable to us. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, I know that that's a failed, it's kind of a, a weak example. It fails at several points. We aren't God, and we wouldn't knowingly put in authority over our kids who didn't share our values. But the principle remains that we are to respect the human authorities, acknowledging that they are flawed, acknowledging that they are God's proxies or his delegates. Unless you think Paul is off his rocker, Peter goes further. 1 Peter chapter 2. This is another passage I want us to look up because Peter goes even further. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. We're going to read down through verse 17. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll start in verse 13. He says, be subject. There's your word again, hupotasso, submit yourselves, submission. For the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme, by the way, who was the emperor when Peter was writing? Still Nero. Paul wrote Romans probably A.D. 57, 58. Nero came into power in 54. Uh, the, uh, uh, Peter wrote this around A.D. 61, 62. Uh, uh, Nero died a few years after that. He was still the emperor. So he says, be subject to the Lord, take to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 
Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and then honor the emperor. Now let me be clear. This does not mean that we agree with our governing authorities. Often it means that you cannot agree. You cannot condone. You cannot approve or cannot participate in what your governing authorities may command that you do because you have a higher authority. Our, Our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. Our ultimate allegiance is to God. But it does mean that we are to respect and to, here, be subject to every human institution, whether it be the emperor, whether it be the local government, whatever it is, so that we can put to silence the foolishness of people because there's a purpose here. Do you think Paul and Peter agreed with Nero's debauchery and immorality and his behavior in his palace? There's no way. Of course not. There's no way. They clearly preached God's word about morality, about what is right and wrong. We can and must disagree when it's appropriate that we do so, but we must disagree. And here's, here's where I'm going to make people mad, so listen close. I'm just going to let the Word of God make us all mad. We must disagree in a manner that glorifies God. We must disagree as Christians are commanded to disagree. Go ahead and turn your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 3. You guys remember where Titus is. If you're in 1 Peter, just go back a few books. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James. And so it's in Titus chapter 3, Paul is writing about authority and about disagreeing with authority and correcting authority. Uh, And so Titus uh, chapter 3. Verse 3, he's talking about submission to authority. And it's not always government authority. It's anyone or any human institution. But we'll start in verse 1, Titus chapter 3, verse 1. He's telling Titus, remind them, remind your congregation, remind the people that I have entrusted to you, that God has entrusted to you, that they are to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work. And then the next verse says, and to speak evil of no one. Who's he talking about? He's just talked about rulers and authorities. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Wow. What's that going to do to our radio talk shows? What's that going to do to our social media feeds? What's that going to do to how we present ourselves and how others are presented we ourselves were once foolish hey we've been there we were disobedient we were led astray. we were slaves to various passions and pleasures passing our days in malice and envy doesn't that sound like politics malice envy hated by others and hating one another but something happened to us the goodness and the loving kindness of God our savior appeared he saved us he rescued us um not no Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Listen, he has been gracious to us. And we were in times past foolish and lost. 
And when we submit to authority, one of the things that we do, when we disagree and when we stand against wrong in government, we do the right thing in the right manner, a manner that glorifies God. We have so many examples of this in Scripture. We have so many examples of this in Scripture. Why? Because the ruling authorities, God often used to refine his body. God often uses to, for, for purposes that are his, and it's important that we understand this, we are to respond to when government gets it wrong, we're to respond in a manner that glorifies God. And there's a lot of reasons for this. We're going to have to pick this up next week. And we will pick this up more as we get into this next week a little bit. But when we disagree, we use every avenue of dissent and we stand for truth. And we do so in the manner described in Titus chapter 3. Remember when Peter stood before the Sanhedrin and they said, you guys are preaching and you're causing disruption. We are your ruling authority you got to shut up. You can no longer preach in the name of Jesus. How did they reply? You, what does it seem right to you, that we obey you or that we obey God? And they went out and they began to preach. So they did not con- follow the commands of their authority, but they responded in an appropriate manner. And there are consequences to that. Matter of fact, shortly after that was when they rejoiced because they were permitted to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes you have to stand like Martin Luther before the Pope. You guys remember the Reformation and that history? Here I stand. I can do no other. Uh, there, there is an ultimate goal in our testimony and in how we respond. And it is that they hear the gospel. And have a response, have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. Uh, Paul, Peter, uh, Acts chapter 26. Paul is standing before Festus. And Festus brings over Agrippa. And Paul's telling his testimony to Agrippa. And Paul was talking about his testimony and his defense. Festus said, Paul, you're off your mind. You're out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you mad. And Paul said, I'm not out of my mind. I'm, I'm speaking the truth. These are rational words. And then he speaks to Agrippa and he says, you know about these things. And, and I'm able to speak boldly to him because he's noticed all these things. None of this has been done in secret. Then he turns to Agrippa and says, Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, alive in Christ. Might become such as I am, forgiven of sins. Might become such as I am, redirected in the path of my life. Might become such as I am, promised us of an eternity in the presence of God. Might be such as I am, able to rest in the provision and the presence of God, even when standing before my accusers. Be just like me, except not in prison, except not in these chains. Our behavior should put to silence ignorant and foolish people, not make them worse, not exacerbate, clarify, and speak. Well, what about when the government gets it wrong? That's the title of next week's sermon. <laughs> what do we do when the government gets it wrong? And we're going to take some time because, guys, we have a responsibility, particularly in this country. We have a voice and we have ways that we are to get engaged when the government gets it wrong. But what does our text today say? It says there's no authority that God has not appointed. And so here's what we tend to think. We tend to think when we have a president that we like, when we have a majority in Congress, 
when we have a mayor that we approve of and a city council that we like, when we have a city manager that we're a fan of, we think, oh, God, you are on the ball today. I am so grateful that you are sovereign. You are such a good God. But when the other side gets in office, when you have a ruler or a set of rulers or a group of rulers or a council or the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, or a state supreme court, or someone that's placed in authority that is not representative of God's morality. We tend to think, well, God, you must have been taking a nap. God, I think you missed something here. And what happens is we have a very anemic view of the sovereignty of God. And so this statement, where we're going right now, is what we've got to grasp and understand because it informs every aspect of our life, but it certainly informs the exhortations found in verse 1 and verse 2 of Romans chapter 13. And it is that we can always trust in the sovereignty of God. Now, I want to hear a rousing amen when I make that statement. We can always trust in the sovereignty of God. Amen. Amen. Is God foolish? Does he sleep and does he slumber? Does God make mistakes and stumble? He doesn't do any of that. He is our sovereign. He is our king. He is our ruler. This passage says there is no authority except from God. By the way, I believe that that authority is not only political authority. I believe it's authority in the classroom. I believe it's authority in your household. I believe it's authority in the uh, parent-teacher organization at the local school. I believe it's a authority on the ball field. There is no authority but has been instituted except from God. And we need to trust in the sovereignty of God. We want to take a good look at what authorities, at the authorities and say, hey, God's on the ball, even when it's good authorities and even when it's bad ones. And our example for this is throughout Scripture. And we can go, the same God who put David on the throne put Saul on the throne. The same God who put David and Solomon on the throne allowed Nebuchadnezzar and not only allowed, directed Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to defeat Judah and Jerusalem, to slay their armies, to take their best and brightest into captivity. You guys remember those accounts and those histo- the history there? As a matter of fact, this is where we get the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you know how they were raised there and how he served, Daniel and, and, and those boys served the, the king of, of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. One night, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he couldn't figure out the dream. And he, he called the, his wise men to come and it, it kept him awake. It bothered him. He called his wise men to come and interpret and they couldn't do it. And he called Daniel because Dan, this is in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel in Daniel chapter 2 had already interpreted one dream. We're going to go look at that in just a moment. But in Daniel chapter 4, we find that uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar recounting his dream to Daniel. Daniel's already demonstrated that God has given him the ability to explain what's going on. And here's what happens that as Nebuchadnezzar recounts his dream to Daniel. He says, I saw in the vision of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, there was a watcher. Where there's a watcher, you can read angel, a holy one, 
who came down from heaven, and he proclaimed aloud. And this is what he said, and this is the dream that he had. There's a tree. Chop down the tree and lop off its branches and strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds fly from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. Does any of that sound familiar to you? This is a dream that he had that Daniel explains to him and this became reality. This happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. It's important. Verse 17, this sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know. Here's the dream, and here's why this is going to happen. So that all the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and even sets over it the lowliest of men. You remember when Pilate said, hey, be careful how you speak to me. I have the authority to kill you. Jesus said, you only have the authority because my father gave it to you. We need to recognize the sovereignty of God. I wish wish we had time to go back and look at this. In Daniel chapter 2, when Daniel describes the first dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had, Daniel is praising God. He says, God, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and acknowledges knowledge to those who have understanding. I wish we had time to go to Isaiah chapter 44, where we see Isaiah, the prophet, speaking, and he's speaking about the goodness that God has in store for Israel. 39 chapters of woe, lament, and and honestly, condemnation. And then in chapter 40, a new picture of God or a clearer picture of God and how he's going to restore Israel. And then in 44, one of the things that he says is he names by name a man named Cyrus. Now, here's the challenge. Cyrus, king of Persia, won't be born for another 157 years. But by name, he names him Cyrus, and he says, and I'm appointing you, Cyrus, my anointed one, the first verse in chapter 45 of Isaiah. My anointed one. You're my shepherd, he calls him in chapter 44, to reestablish the temple in Jerusalem. And 200 years later, we have Cyrus, king of Persia, sending Ezra back to establish the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And he says, I place you on the throne. Here's what we forget so many times. When we are under the authority of people that frustrate us and people that don't share our values and people who do things that just fly in the face of God and his truth, is we forget we serve a sovereign God who makes no mistakes, who's always awake, always alert, and always acting. So what, what is the implication for us? Why are we talking about this today? And you, we got seven verses. We just really made it through the first one. But we'll get to all the rest of them next week. Okay. But why does it matter? I've talked to people after the election cycle who've said, I haven't been able to sleep for the last three months because of the stupidity of North Americans. And can I tell you that I can relate, but we have a trustworthy God, and we may not understand why he does what he does, but he is always active, and he's always worthy of our trust. We don't have to be afraid 
We don't have to be worried. We don't have to think that things are out of God's control because things are always under God's control. And God is working all things according to the counsel of his own will. And God is working all things for his glory and for the good of his church and his kingdom. And he is completely trustworthy. God is in his heaven and all is right with the world. God is in his heaven and he's ruling and reigning. But when we look around, we see there's so much that's not right in the world. And yet when it comes to governing authorities and our submission... We are commanded to submit to those that God has placed in authority over us. Not to agree. That's next week. We'll get deeper into that. For those of you who want to take up arms, come back next week. I'm going to give you some fuel. But we are to disagree in a way that glorifies God and opens a vehicle for the gospel. Amen? Isn't that great? Aren't you glad we have a sovereign God who rules and directs, who acts and who works? And again... We're in this passage of Scripture because this is where God has directed us as a congregation. It's where we've been going through Romans chapter 12 and now through chapter 13. And it is great to just have the the confidence again that we have a God who doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He's not off balance. He knows exactly where he is, and he knows exactly what he's doing. I hope you know him. Even when you don't understand him, I hope you know that he's worthy of your trust He's worthy of your faith, he's worthy of your life, and he's worthy of your obedience. He is the king that we bow the knee to. Amen? Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that you are the king of glory. I pray that you will apply this truth to our heart and to our life. We love you and thank you. In your name I pray.